0: Airlines Confidential with Ben Valdanza and Chris Chimes is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney, whose GTF engines are redefining aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. Aerodata, the leading edge in flight performance data. Visit aerodata.co. Aerodata is a Garmin company. Sidley Austin, the destination law firm for leading airlines and aviation companies. Visit sidley.com slash aviation. And Seabury Securities, global reach, global scale. SeaburySecurities.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com.
1: Hello, Airline Witches and Goblins. As this show drops, Ben and I are getting ready for Halloween because the airline business isn't scary enough for us. Ben, you got your costume all picked out. I got to ask, what was your all-time favorite costume as a kid? Because I can see you as a cowboy.
2: (laughs) Well, a cowboy might have been fun. I was just very lame as a kid when it comes to Halloween. I don't even remember the costumes I wore except for this again, really lame, like zip up black with bones on it to make you look like a skeleton. It was really terrible. You must've done much better, Chris. What was your
1: best? (laughs) No, you know, I kind of froze up at Halloween every year and then at 4 o'clock on the 31st, I went into my father's closet and picked out clothes to be a hobo every, every year. Not that, <laughs> not that he dressed like a hobo. He was very dapper. But I'd find some old baggy clothes and go like a hobo. So,
2: baggy on yeah. you now that he right?
1: <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, one thing that isn't spooky are airline Q3 results, Ben. We talked about Delta on the last show. This past week, United, American, and Alaska all reported strong results and pointed to a strong expectation in Q4. But I'm sure you've got more to say about the results than my short summary.
2: But that's a good summary, Chris. You're right. All the new announcements this week with United American, Alaska all pushed on the real strong revenue environment, the strong demand environment, very bullish about this fall into next year. They also showed as a group some graphs around capacity and unit revenue, all versus 2019, which is in most cases, while capacity is down, unit revenue and total revenue is up, which just tells you how high fares have gotten. American pushed heavy on their debt reduction talked about a very aggressive reduction of debt between now and 2025, which is probably very important for them. One of the reasons when things got really tough right after the pandemic started, one of the reasons people targeted an American as a company that might have to file for bankruptcy protection was because of their heavy debt load. So they focused a lot on that. What disappointed me about all of the calls so far is that none of the airlines that have reported so far talked about costs in any meaningful way, talked about industry structure, the growth of low-cost carriers or consolidation or things like that. And I realize they're talking about their own companies and their earnings, But to sort of put those earnings in context of what the labor issues mean for their long-term cost structure, also in this broad discussion around strong demand and higher fares, they didn't talk about the risk of that sort of regressing to some kind of mean in 2023 where maybe the fares can't be as high as they were this year. And again, I'm not suggesting that these companies are going to go out on an earnings call and give all kinds of bad news, but there's a way to position realistic trends of where things are going around the industry with fares, with cost structures, and how they're positioned relative to that that could have been positive. And the only one who came close to that actually was Alaska. And I'll give them credit for that, Chris, because what they talked a lot about at their earnings call was where they were with their major labor groups, that they've ratified a couple new deals and they've reached agreement with their pilots and things. And with labor such a big issue in the industry and cost such a big issue in the industry, they didn't go so far as to say what that means for their long-term cost profile, but they at least addressed some of the bigger issues. Yeah, I agree with that. Although
1: investors seem to shrug off the lack of Discussion about kind of forward looking issues like you just talked about, Ben. And you know, you got three big issues kind of looming right in front of you in the context of labor, fuel, and inflation. And then if you kind of add on to inflation, recession and demand. And there really wasn't a lot of talk about that. I mean, Scott Kirby talked very effectively about how business travel has perhaps forever changed, but that the industry's adapting and he sees strong business travel demand in the context of this new paradigm. But there wasn't a lot about what typically investors would be pushing on in the context of how you're going to deal with the things ahead of you.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. And when Scott mentioned the change in business travel, I thought that was good, one opportunity maybe he could have done is that's giving us good things to think about around our network, our configuration and our loyalty programs and we're thinking we're thinking about all the ways we can react to this in ways that are great for the united investor right it's not like you've got to say these are all dark clouds on the horizon, but you can say, here's what's happening, and here's how we're responding. Then, Ben, let's
1: go to Europe. I love me some good goulash, and Hungarian-based ultra-low-cost carrier Wizz Air is cooking up some plans for, I I think some would say, some dramatic new growth, according to a story that is just hitting the Financial Times. In the FT story, Wizz Air is going to use some of its new long range Airbus 321XLRs to fly from London to destinations that include the UAE, Israel and Saudi Arabia. They'd continue to fly in an all economy configuration like they do within Europe with their traditional dance seating scheme. So this would mean they're going to go head to head against full service carriers and long haul markets with no frills, low fare service. What do you think?
2: Well, I think that Wiz is a really well-run company and really smart people, so they've clearly thought about this. Now, in general, one of the reasons that long-haul, low-cost doesn't work all that well, and there have been lots of failures in that space, Chris, is because it's hard to get a real cost advantage or a huge cost advantage when you're flying really long distances. Even cost inefficient airlines, when they fly a big airplane a long distance, are pretty low cost on a unit cost basis. And the second thing is, The things that customers will compromise and accept for a low fare on a two to four hour flight become more of a liability on a seven hour flight or an eight hour flight, right? tight seating, no food, or only paid shelf stable food, things like that. And so the A321XLR is a great plane. I think identifying markets like the UAE and Saudi Arabia and Israel as new markets for Wiz is very exciting for that airline, and the XLR allows them to do that. If they're doing that in partnership in ways with the countries or with the airports, which I'm sure they are, that's great. And I think those markets might like that kind of product, as weird as it sounds, But you're right, you've got Emirates there, you've got Etihad and Qatar, and others in Saudi Arabia and elsewhere that do provide sort of nicer service and overall sort of different kind of model. And when Wiz can cut that price dramatically, they're gonna grow the markets and they're gonna just provide a different kind of product in the space that for some group of customers is going to be well-received, I think. So I'm pretty excited about this announcement by Wiz. And my guess is it's going to work well for them.
1: I thought it was interesting they have specifically said they're not going to use the XLRs for long-haul service from Europe to North America. So they're looking to take these planes where others haven't gone. And uh, develop new markets rather than kind of compete with some of the upstarts and new entrants in the low-cost European to North America routes. So, uh, you know, but these are also markets that are lucrative not just for the Middle East carriers, but for the mainline trunk carriers out of Europe, the BAS and the Lufthansas and the Air Frances. So, there's going to be um, there's going to be a, a cat fight a bit um, with regard to. How um, carriers protect their, their turf and compete with a low cost uh, entrant that is likely to come about.
2: I think that's right. But Wiz has a long history of flying like markets from many Eastern European cities into London, where they're not carrying the sort of British business traveler in a business suit on these routes right they're carrying workers from eastern europe who work in london and they they just serve a different kind of market demographically than a lot of the carriers we've talked about in the middle east which is why i think their product in Saudi Arabia and the UAE is going to be well received because what it's going to do is it's going to create a lower price option for a group of people that really aren't being well served by the carriers who are there. Yep, I agree. Uh, we'll watch
1: this space. It's an interesting, uh, interesting uh, advancement in the business. Airlines Confidential is proudly supported by Seabury Securities, a Seabury Capital Group company that is a specialty finance and investment banking firm that boasts a 25-year track record of advising aviation clients around the world. Their award-winning and widely respected team has superior industry knowledge as well as an unmatched depth of relationships with decision makers in industry finance and government. Explore their global reach and scale at SeaburySecurities.com.
2: And this week's show is also brought to you by Pratt & Whitney, a world leader in aircraft engines, helicopter engines, and auxiliary power units. The Pratt & Whitney GTF engine is the only geared propulsion system delivering industry-leading sustainability and dependable world-class operating costs. With up to 20% less fuel and CO2 emissions, the GTF engine has revolutionized commercial aviation and set the foundation for more sustainable aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. And then finally,
1: from Hungary to Hawaii, um, I feel like I'm drafting a news release as I say this about the benefits of an airline alliance and the network that can take you from Boise to Bora Bora. But anyway, Hawaiian Airlines announced what summer hailing is somewhat game-changing in a deal with Amazon to fly up to 10 all all-freighter aircraft for Amazon, maintaining and flying 10 Amazon-owned Airbus A330s and establishing a mainland pilot base to do so.
2: Ben, what do you think about this? I think it's brilliant by Hawaiian. Amazon is growing as an airline. Amazon, as everyone knows, is a huge logistics company. And within that, finding ways for them to use aircraft for longer haul service, for carrying products longer distances makes sense. And what Hawaiian's done is figured out, at least what you can read from the reports, a way to sort of partner with them where they can be the operator. And what Hawaiian's good at is flying planes, fixing planes, running a sound operation, which they do very well. And what Amazon's good at doing is figuring out where demand is and how these planes can be used in a logistics network. So for Hawaiian to be part of that, is a real powerful thing for that company. I think it brings them in a new space. Air Cargo has been a shining star really since the pandemic. Amazon's been a big part of that. So I think this is great news for Hawaiian. It shows their capability at being able to outsource their competency to a company that is focused on other things, but they can do what they do best. So I hope this works well for Hawaiian. And those who've called it a game-changing agreement, I think that's pretty fair terminology.
1: Well, Peter Ingram out there in Hawaii is a really smart guy. Uh, We were colleagues at American. So I tip my hat to them for doing this deal. It opens up a bunch of wide-body flying for Hawaiian pilots and just creates growth as well within the company. So all very exciting. And I think this is a really smart deal, like uh, like you said. Well, We'll be right back with our chat with Chris Sloan. But first, I'll take a moment to remind our listeners that if you're in the air transport business, you need to know the name Aerodata. For three decades, Aerodata has helped airlines get more from their operations with its aircraft performance, weight and balance and load planning tools and more. Visit Aerodata.co to learn more and see how the Aerodata team can make a difference for your carrier operation.
0: This portion of Airlines Confidential is sponsored in part by Sidley Austin. From the ramp to the boardroom, the destination law firm for leading airlines and aviation companies transforming the skies.
1: Welcome back to Airlines Confidential. We're joined this week by our friend and roving correspondent, Chris Sloan, who has been in Las Vegas at the Routes Conference. And uh, this is an industry forum that uh, is somewhat mysterious, and he's going to try to shed some light on it.
3: But, Chris, welcome back. I'm glad to be back, I'm uh, and I'm glad to be leaving Las Vegas uh, with still the shirt on my back. So that's a positive. There you go. <laughs>
2: So, Chris, why don't you start and just describe what Routes World is all about, who goes, what, what is this whole conference?
3: Well, Routes World is really a, a fascinating conference. It's Epcot meets a marketplace meets speed dating. So what does actually that mean? And really, it's this really convergence worldwide of network planners and airline uh, marketing executives and route development folks with airport routes development CEOs and market development folks. And they they get together, and they really are trying to persuade each other on the merits of launching service to any of those particular cities. So in this case, you know, this conference has been going on for around 27 years. This is the worldwide routes conference. There are regional versions, uh, ones in the Americas, ones more uh, for called a t- sister conference called Takeoff, which is for regionals, and then some... In um, other parts of the world, but in this particular case, there's two thousand delegates attending, and so 190 of the world's airlines are represented. Uh, An over 85 percent of the world's top airlines by R, you know, RPKs are there, and then um, uh, there's literally eight to nine thousand meetings in the speed dating format with these tables, and you have like 15 to 20 minutes to make your pitch. So there's that format, and that's all going on behind the scenes, and you're literally that's kind of the the real core of what this is. And then there's keynote conferences and then a massive uh, floor with the, that's why I called it Epcot, with these very elaborate booths and displays and uh, slices of culture that really uh, are there to kind of uh, promote the these airports, these destinations, these airlines. And by the way, some of these get really, really elaborate. I was really surprised, but I will say the one thing that was missing that was shocking for an airline conference, do you guys have any idea what might have been missing? What you don't see, I didn't see one of. Airplane models. Bingo. So this is an airport conference. Well, it's really airports. It's airports and airlines together.
2: But Chris, in the speed dating, you use the words make the pitch. Is this airports making the pitch to planners, here's why you should fly to my airport? Or is it airlines making the pitch to airports saying, here's why you should give me a gate or lower your costs?
1: Exactly. Who's who's the aggressor here?
3: (laughs) Yes. The airline, who is the aggressor in airline Tinder? It is exactly what you're saying. It is airports making the pitch to airlines. And so interesting enough, the way this works is that airports pay to be there. They pay sponsorships for the booth, overall sponsorships, and they pay actually to have a table. And so they get airlines to sign up to come to their booth. And, f- you know, the, one of the reasons that it attracts all these airlines, the airlines do not pay to be there. Everything is covered for them. And so the airports underwrite that cost because what they are doing is what you're saying is they're making the pitch on why their market deserves service from that airline. And a number of routes, you know, those conversations begin at this kind of one-stop shopping bazaar that lead to, you know, air servicing worth millions and millions of dollars to a community. And yes, what you are saying comes up frequently. The first questions are a lot about, you know, revenue guarantees and incentives and marketing guarantees and, and what we can do to defray costs, so that all comes up. Um, but we are, you know, not obviously we're not allowed to sit in on those meetings. There's literally three halls of 70 tables apiece where you're seeing this conducted.
1: So overall themes, you know, what was the, was there a lot of positivity about about the rebound of travel? What were the themes you picked up on, even though you couldn't attend these speed dating sessions? You were in general sessions and having conversations.
3: Well, I think the themes that are echoed are largely those that we've been hearing. I mean, there's a lot of positivity and optimism that, you know, uh, this new segment for the word we hate, pleasure, has really uh, caused an amazing travel rebound. But of course, that's bringing all the pain points that we're hearing in terms of labor and hiring and, you know, capacity pullbacks. And so uh, certainly everything we're hearing about the macroeconomic conditions, I think there's a drinking game every time you heard the word macroeconomic conditions or turbulence, that uh, there was a lot of shots taken for that. So, I mean, there's a lot of optimism, but there's also certainly pent up anxiety unless you're a ULCC and uh, then you're walking through the show with just a tremendous amount of swagger that uh, you're seeing no evidence of anything wrong on virtually any front, whether that's booking curves, whether that's labor. So it's really very positive for them, but it depends when you see the panel's Uh, you would certainly, especially outside the United States, you would see a little bit more anxiety um, than you did, you know, domestically or particularly if you were an LCC player.
2: Well, Chris, in addition to the speed dating, people give presentations too, and you could go to those, right?
3: Uh, Yes, there are a number of panels. Uh, Some are called power panels where you really have a variety of executives from airlines and airports getting together and also economists to kind of give a state of the, uh, of the world. So, you know, I can give you a sense of some of the highlights that we heard on those and um, some of the kind of, um, it's not like you're expecting to go to this and hearing news breaking, but you do uh, get a real sense of, uh, you know, how different airlines and different airports see the world.
1: What do you think the headlines were coming out of the conference? Any news made or anything you thought was newsworthy?
3: Uh, Just off the top of my head, I mean, just kind of going down a a hit list of some things that were really interesting. I mean, Allegiant Air, very much so, you know, the hometown carrier uh, really talked about, you know, their exponential growth and how it's only exploding. And what I thought was really interesting is that just when you think that have they tapped every small market from Bristol, Oklahoma, nonstop to Punta Gorda. They really to describe that they have another 1,400 domestic route opportunities that they have evaluated that they believe are on their table and even more on the international side, which I thought was interesting because they've flown domestically. They really talked a lot about uh, the fact that the uh, Viva Airbus uh, agreement now and code shares, which is, you know, had been kind of put on hold with COVID is now looks like it's going to clear for January 2023. And that's really the first U.S. domestic alliance of its kind uh, between a U.S. and, uh, you know, Mexican LCC carrier, which is the largest, busiest cross-border traffic in the world. And why we were at the conference, they were very excited because literally that day, just a few hours after it, uh, the Mexican version of the DOT approved that. So that was pretty big news um, as far as allegiance growth. Uh, There was also the inevitable question of, well, uh, as There's consolidation in the industry. People are already talking about, well, is it now time for a velo and breeze to engage in some of this consolidation? I mean, they're barely a year old and they're already talking about marriage. And, uh, you know, Allegiance said they don't even fall on our radar. We don't cross paths, they don't impact any of our decision making. Uh, We don't really see an impact there. So I thought that was interesting. Hawaiian, uh, Peter Ingram talked about really the recovery of uh, Hawaiian and Really that the last leg uh, of their recovery, their journey, as they say, kind of aloha ye to, uh, or is it aloha yee, they say that to uh, the pandemic. They said, really, now that Japan is coming back online, that's really the third piece of that international structure uh, because the inner islands come back, mainland's been gangbusters, but now they are really uh, making a, a return and seeing, uh, you know, Australia New Zealand come back. So they've, for the first time, uh, were bullish and, you know, they've really been hit. Uh, you would argue, of any U.S. carrier just because the way their network was. I mean, they were almost virtually shut down for a year and a half, two months. Uh, they did announce that the Dreamliner 787s will actually arrive. Uh, there's one complete. Uh, it'll arrive toward the end of next year. But a lot of people have been speculating that that aircraft will be uh, will be used for Europe. And he said, basically, what this is going to do is overlay additional uh, network growth in uh, Europe and Asia. And so they tamped down the whole uh, European thing, which I thought was interesting. And um, uh, the plane actually will just be improving services. So they spoke a lot about that. More of
2: our conversation about Chris Sloan's great visit to the Routes Conference in just a moment, which is sponsored in part by Sidley Austin, the destination law firm for leading airlines and aviation companies, Transforming the Skies. From the ramp to the boardroom, Sidley provides the broadest range of legal services to clients on the most critical issues facing our industry today. Sidley combines unmatched experience with top-tier capabilities across a vast global footprint. Visit sidley.com aviation for more information. All right. So, Chris, how international was this conference? And did you get sort of a world view of recovery? And, you know, were airports you've never heard of pitching airlines you never heard of? Or at least maybe in your case, you've heard of them, but never flown them?
3: There was a few airports, I have to say, uh, you know, if we're playing the game Stump the av geek. I would have failed. Uh, There was a Korean airport that was attracting a lot of attention because they had the Squid Game uh, characters uh, in the booth. (laughs) Now, I'm not sure if that's a good or bad piece of marketing, because if you lose the negotiation, what happens if you lose the game? But uh, it certainly generated buzz. Um, And yes, there was a number of airlines, you know, a lot of talk around the Wiz uh, joint venture with the Saudi Arabian airports. And, and that growth of the LCC whizzes going into, into Saudi Arabia is a big way, in a big way as that country really becomes, quote, more liberalized and open uh, to foreign tourism. But uh, certainly, the, yeah, there was definitely a world uh, a view. I think the most interesting thing I took away was just the real challenges uh, with labor that they're having and, uh, and how airports are using, in some, in some cases, to their advantage. So Heathrow's it's obviously been very well-documented problems there. And Gatwick, uh, you know, has also suffered from that, but they're doing pretty aggressive things with their labor to the point of they're finding that they they would make all these hires and then have people actually not take the job while they waited six to eight weeks for security clearances or they're waiting for final applications. So basically, they've just taken the stance of throwing money at the table um, and saying, when we hire you, even though you can't start working, you're going on payroll immediately um, to try to keep labor uh, to keep you there because we Note this is our time really to seize the moment and also potentially open up that second runway to steal market share from Heathrow, which has been so plagued. I thought the most interesting market that we heard about was really Canada. And you would think maybe there's not a lot of interest in Canada, but it's actually really fascinating. This is a market that's only 40 million people. Geographically, it's huge, but there's six to seven ULCCs. This used to be a two carrier market, really. It was you know, air Canada west jet and west jets really retreated back to its roots it's gotten out of you know trying to be all things to all people and competing so heavily in the eastern provinces so it's really kind of you know almost the story a little bit like virgin australia kind of going back to its roots they'll be they're putting a pause on long haul growth and expansion keeping it under seven aircraft but they are under siege a bit and it was for they were a little bit i would say uh, not as bullish but because there's a tremendous amount of ULCC competition there and uh, they actually predicted that there would be uh, consolidation in that market because it seems impossible to sustain that many independent carriers. And again, you're talking about a country that was on you know, some of the most restricted COVID lockdowns in the world and very, very little government support uh, with the airlines and you have extremely high cost airports which also make it difficult. So that narrative of the Canadian market Uh, is the one that looks like, uh, ironically, that it's going to have uh, the most changes over the next few years. And um, particularly Sunwing, I guess, is the first example of that, which WestJet purchased. And they're saying, basically, they don't know uh, which brand it's going to be folded into, but it's likely going to be folded either into WestJet or to Swoop. So that market that was formerly kind of stayed in almost a duopoly is uh, one of the most dynamic ones in the world.
1: So anytime you get a bunch of airline executives and airport officials together, there's likely to be some quotable quotes or memorable lines. Uh, Anything stand out from the presentations?
3: Well, the always quotable notable Barry Biffle was making a comment about consolidation and how he felt that uh, JetBlue spirit was actually a win-win for him because it would leave him, you know, the bulk of the uh, true ULCC market in this uh, country. And he said, you know, it's great for them. It's like a, he equated Jeb Louie. He said, it's like a Nordstrom buying a Walmart and then shutting down Walmart. So, where are all their passengers going to go? They're all going to be forced to pay 50% higher fares. So, I don't know. Walmart, Nordstrom?
2: Very interesting <laughs> names there. I don't know that I'd call Frontier Walmart. I think Walmart's a lot nicer, actually. <laughs> And I would love to hear American or maybe even Delta's view of JetBlue being called Nordstrom.
3: So is Frontier really like the dollar store? And then is that would that be more apt?
2: I think that's probably more apt. What do you think, Chris?
1: I, I don't know. I you know airlines have been talking about retailing for a long time, but I'm not sure that they're analogous to uh, that comparison that Barry made. You know, look at some level every airplane has a bit of walmart and target and macy's um you know even spirit's got a comfy first class seat concept or whatever else so they try to be a lot of things to a lot of people but um i I get where barry's going he's trying to make the best out of a, a situation where they got they got snookered a bit with regard to trying to get that deal done. If they didn't think it was a good deal to begin with, they wouldn't have pursued it. So you can you can say it's good in the end, but at some level somebody thought it was a good deal.
3: He did say I thought it was an interesting another interesting line. He was saying it, you know, another real tailwind for Frontier is that it's going to be a terribly distracting Difficult financial, a very difficult integration for them, and uh, and he said, I would not wish that job uh, of being the chief commercial officer of JetBlue basically on anybody. So, uh, he had a little bit of a, he had a little bit of swagger uh, there. So I thought that was interesting.
1: Look, I, I'm sorry, but I think executives are better off being authentic in their comments, and you know, there's nothing wrong with him expressing a bit of disappointment about not getting that deal and then moving on about how they're going to survive and thrive without the deal. But to somehow kind of say it was all for nothing and good luck and it's JetBlue's problem now, I I don't think is the right way to proceed. But again, that's why I'm probably not the CEO of Frontier Airlines.
2: (laughs) Okay, Chris, so you spent these couple of days in this speed-dating, high-nerd quotient environment. (laughs) Do you want to go back to this every year? Did you feel it was worth being there for someone in your position? I mean, just how good is this event for people who are really interested in the industry to think about going to?
3: That's a great question. This was a conference where I was – first impression uh, was where is – this been all my life and how did I miss this? For an airline business convention where you're really, uh, you know, getting a sense of networks, it's phenomenal. The updates you get from an airport perspective, an airline perspective, and is just, there's a lot of grist there. And, um, and, you know, it's very different than air shows I've been to. As I said, there wasn't a model plane. This is not, this is not Farnborough. This is not Paris. It's very different than that. This is not the IATA AGM conference, which are a lot about you know regulation and and you know ultimate uh, you know almost you know an ESG conference these days or economists. This is really from a nuts and bolts standpoint of how the industry works and where it's going. I thought it was fabulous and just I have to also say now it's Las Vegas and you know this is the whole phrase is you know what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Well. They don't want any of this to stay in vegas this these this really has an outsized effect on the world and so these guys certainly know how to throw a party and it, it's it's visually uh, uh exciting and a lot of fun and many open bars and uh and take food and it was it was it's fun for the brain but it was also i have to just use the word it was a blast
2: well thanks for being there and thanks for allowing our listeners to sort of get a sense of what
3: this was all about. Thank you. It was uh, great. Now I'm ready to uh, be leaving Las Vegas, as Sheryl Crow once said.
1: <laughs> all right, buddy, you got a plane to catch, so we'll let you go and talk soon.
3: Y'all take care.
2: We'll be right back with more Airlines Confidential.
0: Promotional consideration by thearchive.net, the hub of the history of commercial aviation. The archive.net is now boarding. This portion of Airlines Confidential is sponsored in part by AeroData, the leading edge in flight performance data. Visit aerodata.co. AeroData is a Garmin company.
2: Welcome back to Airlines Confidential. And thanks again to Chris Sloan for flying around the world and telling us about all the fun places he goes. Time now to take some listener questions Please keep your questions coming via email at questions at airlinesconfidential.com or visit airlinesconfidential.com and follow the prompts to submit your comment or question.
1: Ben, first up, we heard from Nicholas, our regional pilot, on guess what, the pilot shortage. He writes us, I've been flying Part 121 at a regional carrier for a couple of months now, and I've noticed a lot of my peers young, and with minimal hours, are leaving for either legacy carriers or ultra-low-cost carriers. I've been flying with many captains with thousands of hours of 121 pilot-in-command time and a lot of experience and a great attitude, but they are not getting calls. Why do you think the guys with just over 200 hours in a jet, and let's be clear, that could be women as well, are getting the calls and those with thousands of pilot-in-command hours aren't? Is there really a shortage or is it just a self-made crisis? I've heard from many captains with no failures and great experience that update their applications on a weekly basis that they're not even getting an invite for an interview. I'm starting to think that airlines are just not being organized and the easy way out is to blame the pilots."
2: Well, Nicholas, this is an interesting point you're making. I certainly will reach out to people I know in the industry and see if there's a bias, for example, against the more senior regional captain. My sense is there probably isn't, but you point out that you know people who aren't getting interviews when everybody is screaming pilot shortage. So it suggests maybe there is something here. I will say That when airlines look to hire, bigger airlines look to hire out of the regional space, they're not only looking at the time of the person, but they're looking at the geography, how likely they are to accept the offer. For example, if they live in Atlanta, better chance Delta is going to be able to hire them than American since they'd be commuting all the time for American and there are other things they look at beyond just the hours and it may be coincidental but it may be some of the people talking to you with a lot of hours have other things about their application or about their experience that is not resulting in them getting the next interview that said I think that Flying captain for the regionals is a great way to ultimately get on with the big airlines. And I don't think that having lots of experience with the regionals on its own should be uh, a reason not to be considered for those roles. This is something I think we want to follow up on. But my guess is there's more here than just the hours conversation.
1: Yeah, I had the same reaction. Uh, it's a it's a valid question Nicholas is raising and an interesting one. But you know, as as recruiters are trying to make make the deal and find the right candidate, do pay rates increasing for captains in the retail industry? Do they think that they're not going to be as motivated to move right now? in Basically, a kind of a lateral role uh, versus. A younger pilot with fewer hours who it would be a much bigger jump financially, for example. So I think there's a lot of things going on in this question. You have to wonder too, like with, with a lot of, uh, AI based recruiting tools, you know, how much of this is applications getting weeded out by a bot versus a human? I don't know that much about the, uh, uh, airline pilot recruiting process right now, but so much of it is is uh, kind of the first layer is a computerized check of the resume and the application. So some of that to play as well. But Ben, you got the better contacts in the business. So go find out some more information on this.
2: Well, hopefully we'll have more on that in the next episode or two. And Chris, then we've got a question from Joe in San Diego. Hi, guys. Love the show. Is it a security issue for Southwest to have open seating due to the fact that everyone is anonymous to flight attendants when they board and sit down on the aircraft versus airlines with seat assignments where flight attendants could select a seat on the tablet and see who's sitting in that seat? Chris,
1: is this a security risk? I'm going to say no. Benny might feel otherwise, but... I'm going to say a hard no in the context of airlines need to know who's on the plane, have identified them before they board and, and stick to the manifest with regard to ticketed passengers. But then once they're seated, it's really much more of a customer service issue, whether it be to recognize someone for their loyalty or if they pre-ordered a meal or the like. Um, but, but with regard to Southwest open seating scheme, You know, that's been in existence for decades. Where somebody sits on the plane isn't uh, a security issue. And if someone's misbehaving, there's plenty of ways to find out with their name in the context of, of identifying them and asking for credentials once there's a situation on board. But as far as just a flat out safety or security issue, I don't think it matters.
2: I agree with you, Chris. There is a positive manifest of everyone on the plane. So before they board, Southwest knows who's on that plane and the people who need to know who's on that plane know who's on that plane, whether they've moved around. I mean, it's if you believe that's a security risk, then it's also security risk on an airline with seat assignments, that once everybody's sitting down, someone says, can I move over to that seat, or can we exchange so I can sit with my partner or something like that, and nobody thinks of that either. So I think it's right. Um, this isn't a security risk, because we know who's on the plane, and the plane's only so big. Correct. But Joe, thanks for the question.
1: So as we wrap, I'm going to give a shout down to the news media this past week who gave way too much attention to the story about American Airlines eliminating first class seats on international wide body aircraft in favor of an all business class configuration. This seemed to be all over the news last week. It wasn't news. American had announced this well over a month ago. These are literally a handful of seats on a small group of wide body aircraft. And if my recollection is correct, it was part of the original requirement of the formation of the One World Alliance that all carriers had to offer a first-class cabin in international wide-body service, which, of course, has since become passe. Few people are buying these seats, and they didn't offer much difference than business class seats, yet outlets like NBC News and The Hill and even People Magazine ran stories like it was breaking news and somehow characterized it as first-class seats on a narrow body were going away as well. I remember a couple of years ago when I was debating with a news organization about why they were running a story with, quote, old news about something that happened on Carnival over two weeks previously. The editor told me, it isn't news until we cover it. So go figure. But I think (laughs) think that that was the rule here, too.
2: Yeah, I think so. This was a big sort of nothing announcement, I think. And anybody following the industry knows that business class products internationally have been getting better and better, and that's where the attention is. And it wouldn't be surprising to me if you don't see many other longer haul airlines do this same kind of thing and upgrade their business class and just get rid of the couple first class seats. That, that's a good one, Chris. My shout-out is also seat related, but it is a shout-out and it goes to Virgin Australia, who is trying to make it better to sit in the middle seat. Now middle seats um get a lot of angst in this industry and you know, who, who's forced to sit there versus does anybody want to sit there? But Virgin Australia is running a promotion where if you sit in the middle seat, you're actually entered into a raffle where you can win some interesting prizes, including free flights, frequent fire benefits or even a helicopter pub crawl. So I think it's great that they're trying to make something that is generally derided and chided in this industry and saying there could be a real positive for sitting there. So I give them the shout out for trying to be creative and making this happen. Good for them. I still wouldn't want to sit in the middle
1: seat, but someone's got to do it, so uh, (laughs) I get it. With that, uh, let's say goodbye.
2: Everyone have a good week and thanks for listening. Have a great week and a safe Halloween to everyone too.
0: This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.